0: everybody, welcome to Clark Talks, the Colombian's podcast where we bring you the stories and views behind the news. We are your hosts. I'm Damien Pizzanti. I'm Jake Thomas. So uh, this week, as usual, we're bringing you another exciting, fun-filled episode with interesting interviews, thought-provoking conversations, and just an all-around good time. But before we go too far, we want to introduce you to a new voice that you're going to be hearing on the podcast and probably a new name you've seen in the paper the last few days. So, Katie, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Uh, Yeah, my name is Katie Sword. I'm the new political reporter for The Columbian.
0: So what kind of stuff are you covering now?
1: I'm covering the Vancouver City Council as well as the city and and your federal representatives. so.
0: I'm really glad that we're having somebody put a lot of more emphasis, a renewed emphasis on uh, federal level politics. Because every now and then we get some stuff about JHB, but I'm glad to see that you're bringing that, bringing that sharp focus. Where were you before
1: this? Yeah, before this, I spent a few years in Portland, also in the media there.
0: Well, that's awesome. I'm glad you're here. And so we're going to hear from you in just a few minutes when we talk about a state and local election, right? Yes, you will. Okay, cool. Before we
2: get to local politics, we're going to talk state politics with Cyrus Habib. Who's that? He's the state's lieutenant governor. It's an office that a lot of people might not think a whole lot about, but it does quite a bit. And he was down here in southwest Washington to talk talk about economic development
0: and here's a conversation with him. You've had a uh, pretty I mean you're still fairly early on in your career as a politician on the state level and man you have uh, risen through the ranks pretty quickly. Uh I think one of my favorite things I remember that I've told these guys about multiple times is I remember on Twitter, uh, when you were still a senator, Hello. you gave a floor speech. That, this never, anything that starts with that sentence <laughs> is, is dangerous already. <laughs> well, I think this is good. But I remember you had you had just given a, a statement on the floor about a bill that the Republicans wanted to pass. And somebody said you were bringing the ruckus. And then you uh, tweeted out like two different lyrics from the Wu-Tang Clan. Yeah, You've had a... Uh, I mean, you're still fairly early on in your career as a politician on the state level, and man, you have uh, risen through the ranks pretty quickly. Uh, I think one of my favorite things I remember that I've told these guys about multiple times is, I remember on Twitter, uh, when you were still a senator, you gave a floor speech. This never, anything that starts with that sentence (laughs) is, Dangerous already. <laughs> well, I think this is good. But I remember you—you had, you had just given a, a statement on the floor about a bill that the Republicans wanted to pass, and somebody said you were bringing the ruckus, and then you uh, tweeted out like two different lyrics from the Wu Tang Clan. Yeah. Time for a generational change, right? Yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. Yeah,
3: I've, you know, it's—it's it's this. So this is my um, this is my fifth year uh, in elected office. I was elected in twenty twelve. To the state house of representatives, and then um, served a term there, and then ran for the state senate, and um, and then two years later ran for lieutenant governor, which is, uh, you know, in a way, it's a it's a it's a completely different role. I mean, it's a statewide role. It's in the executive branch, but it also, um, you know, I have one foot in the in the legislative branch, and actually, you know, in the senate as president of the state senate. So, so in a way, it didn't feel um, like I was you know departing the senate where I'd been serving. So, so it's, um, you know, transition was, was a little bit easier in that sense, but, but it's been exciting, it's been fun to be able to do different things and, and serve in different capacities in public service. Um, so I think that the office of the Lieutenant
2: Governor is, is an office that a lot of pe- people forget about sometimes. Uh, but
3: that, so that, assumes th- they, that assumes they were thinking about it earlier right, and, that, and yeah. then <laughs> forgot. <laughs>
2: forgot, so, yeah.
3: uh, so I was hoping you could just remind us, what does Lieutenant Governor do in Washington? So I'm glad you asked because the lieutenant governor um, does different things in different states. Each each state has you know has its own uh, constitutional and uh, and and legal requirements, and then its own traditions as well. So um, so our state, I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, was was ranked as as one of the three states where the lieutenant governor has the most responsibilities, and and that's in large part because um, in in our state, the lieutenant governor also serves as president of the state senate. Uh, irrespective of which party is in the majority in the Senate so right now for example the the Republicans are in the majority by one vote in the state Senate and uh, I'm a Democrat but I'm still the president of the Senate if, if you know if the Democrats were to take the majority that would stay the same so um, so that's um, that's one that's probably the the part of the job that's most visible to um, to folks who follow politics um, I I lead the Senate i I call on senators recognize them to speak uh, I resolve parliamentary disputes that can often uh, determine the outcome of a particular piece of legislation um, and I, I enforce the rules as well as the state constitution and statutes when we're in the Senate I also um, chair the committee that decides what which bills get voted on by by the Senate and and a whole host of other subsidiary responsibilities so that's that's one big chunk of it. Another part uh, of the job is to um, serve as the acting governor every time the governor, uh, every time Governor Inslee leaves the state, even if he just leaves for a couple hours. Um, and so that, you know, it varies, but at over, if you look over the past 10 years or so, it's averaged about 60 to 70 days a year. Um, and, um, and then what, what we've done, which is different than previous, governor, lieutenant governor um, uh, relationships is that we actually partner together and work together on a whole bunch of other things even while he's in the state. Um, so uh, just to give you a Clark County example, uh, I was coming down here to uh, keynote the, um, the uh, uh, Fort Vancouver uh, uh, Marshall Awards and uh, Fort Vancouver Trust Marshall Awards and, um, and Governor Inslee asked me to come and give a speech on his behalf and present a letter of congratulations to the winners. So so some things like that that maybe you would associate with a president and vice president at the federal level, we we partner just so that we can cover more surface area across the state. And then finally there's the areas that, that either because of um, state law or because of my own kind of interest and, and my own priorities, just the, the other areas that we work on. And and the biggest one um, in that regard is economic development and international trade. So I just led uh, a, a delegation to South Korea and was was really excited and, and pleased to have Elizabeth Scott from the Columbia River Economic Development Association um, right here in Clark County join me on that trip so that we could promote Clark County businesses and look for opportunities and investment from overseas to help grow jobs right here in Washington State. So what brings you down to uh, Southwest Washington? Yeah, as president of the Senate, uh, I was, uh, you know, I was really based in Olympia throughout um, the, 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 the regular session and the special sessions that we had until um, the legislature adjourned for the year in late July. And so um, since that time, and my hope had been that the legislature would get its work done earlier and that and that we'd be able to start this earlier in the year. but since uh, since that time, we've been um, traveling around the state doing what I had promised to do um, when I was a candidate, which is listening and getting to know um, the the uh, the people in the state, the communities, uh, businesses, and really getting to understand uh, how can we make sure, that the economic growth which our state is experiencing is actually uh shared across the whole state because we know that there are lots of places where um, economic growth uh has been strong um, but there are just as many where you have communities struggling and they're struggling because of um, displacement due to technology in some cases to displacement due to competition from overseas, um, you know, a changing workforce and labor needs. And in my view, in large part due to the fact that we haven't made enough investments in higher education and workforce training. And so uh, w- what we're doing really is going around the state trying to figure out and listen to people and say, okay, tell us about your city tell us about your county tell us about your um, port district and how can we at the state level help and not in that kind of way that that politicians do when they come around during election time and they say you know you know i, I really care about you and i want to hear you know what what's important to you but actually now that you know there's no election in sight for me to just we're, we're just doing our job and i think another part of that is that since my office by statute ha- plays a leadership role in international affairs for our state. I- I'm also very intrigued by and, and and eager to find opportunities to connect our communities with international uh, op- you know opportunities economic opportunities whether they're export opportunities or investment, tourism, uh, marketing our, our different regions and, and I think you know that that 's important because because the big companies the boeing's the Microsofts the amazon's they have plenty of overseas resources they have their own you know offices overseas marketing their entire operations but small and medium sized businesses can 't do that and so that 's somewhere where I think the state can really be of assistance
0: so you guys are um, speaking of that listening you 're going to um Later today, go up to Cowlitz County to mm-hmm. speak uh, speak at the labor roundtable. Is that right? The labor roundtable is down here in oh, um, Clark okay. County, but we're we've got a series of meetings in Cowlitz County. Okay. Um, you know, I'm glad that you brought up the economic uh, listening and the, just the fact that, you know, some regions of the state are doing much better financially than other regions are. Mm-hmm. You know, I think Southwest Washington is one of those places that over the last few years, or I would even even more than that, probably the last few decades, has, you know, taken blows as the economy has, has, has switched. And um, you know, just what was it yesterday or maybe the day before, the Department of Ecology denied that permit for the uh, Millennium Bulk Terminal. And, you know, as controversial as that project is, um, that one and all the other fossil fuel projects that have been proposed in this area for five or 10 years, um, there was, for a significant chunk of people down here, um, they saw those as like an economic shot in the arm. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of people, it was a chance to build it or even the chance to get a, get a job there. And so what I wonder is if those projects aren't going to be allowed to be built here um what's the alternative what what can what can come to southwest washington uh instead of a terminal
3: well i think so so i'm not a part of the ecology process what i can tell you is that um you know when it comes to economic development we want to look at a a few things one is um, what what's the quality of jobs that we're creating and then what's the kind of Sustainability of those jobs over time. Um, you know, a, a lot of the communities that have suffered the most, uh, including here in Southwest Washington, and really, um, you know, w- when you look at the Rust Belt nationally, um, you know, those areas have uh, workers who have been trained and were trained for jobs that were there. But their training um, and, the, and the jobs that were there. Um, they they aligned at the time. Those jobs, though, uh, ended up being um, shorter term than people expected for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, Geopolitical reasons, macroeconomic reasons, and so um, you know when we look, and I'll just, I'll give, let me give coal as an example, coal exports as an example. There are definitely good uh, building and construction jobs um, at stake in building uh, any type of um, capital project, Including, um, you know, port-related facilities, export-related facilities of, of any type. Doesn't matter what you're importing or exporting. There's obviously there's capital project there. There's going to be jobs. Um, the question is, you know, is the operation of that terminal of a of a coal facility uh, something that we can really rely on in the long term? And uh, you know, I, I at the governor's request, I led a delegation to China. Uh, to sign a a jobs and education agreement uh, just a few weeks ago. And I can tell you, I mean, China, which is the largest consumer of fossil fuels, they are taking drastic steps and have uh, to divest themselves from coal. And you look at coal over the past 10 years and it's a tiny, the the, the current uh, demand for it's a tiny fraction of what it was 10 years ago. So, you know, again, I, I, I think that state government needs to be sensitive to, to your point, or you know, to continue your insinuation, needs to be sensitive about um, where each community is in its own economic development plan. And, you know, you're not going to have, um, you know, Amazon or Microsoft uh, building an R&D engineering facility in every single town or city in the state. But on the other hand, as we do that, let's make sure that the jobs that we're creating in the short term, we can actually rely on in the long term. And I think the best way to do that, is to make investments in higher education and workforce training. Because the most valuable asset any community can have to be competitive
0: for jobs in the 21st century is an educated workforce. Yeah, I think to your point, one of the chief criticisms of not only that project, but the one down here in Vancouver that a lot of people have had is that you know, there is such a rise in renewable uh, resources and or re- renewable energy sources that uh, projects like this have a shelf life and then suddenly you have a giant empty building that nobody can quite figure out what to do with so. And that's the thing is I mean you know
3: I, I have the luxury I guess in this job of being able to to dig a little bit deeper a lot of politicians you know take deep satisfaction in, in just being there at a ribbon cutting and you know when, when, when three or four years later um, you know those jobs aren't needed anymore. Uh, you know they don't they don't show up somehow. Those poli- same politicians don't show up uh, for the for the for the for the closure. Our thought is okay. How can we really focus on uh, preparing Clark County's workforce? For not just the jobs of 2017 or 2018, but really 2037, 2038, because a you know a kid who's coming out of school right now, 17-year-old, 18-year-old boy or girl is coming out of school, um, is got to be thinking not just about you know how to how to survive and, and you know and, and feed themselves now, but what are they going to be ready for when they're in their late 30s? And boy, it's a lot harder to retrain and reskill. When you're, you know, my age, than when you're just coming out of high school. So, so, what is the plan for places like Southwest Washington, as far as jobs
2: and economic development? I mean, education and workforce training is good, but what, what are we going to have? I mean, you mentioned we're not going to have R and D facilities for Microsoft to Amazon er- everywhere, but we're going to. Well, I think have we can
3: have them in Vancouver. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah. I think Vancouver is a spot. I think, I think, um you know, Vancouver um, really has a strong play to make in being part of the. Uh, the greater portland area, um, and when you look at uh, for example intel's strong uh role in uh, in 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 the Portland economy, you have semiconductor and and uh, chip
0: wafer you know manufacturing and engineering here. I had that same thought when we were thinking about that question. We kind of have this benefit of even having like a historical technology. We were like almost like the first generation of tech out here with you know h p mm-hmm. and all that, but you know places like I don't, Grays Harbor, and uh, Kalletts County, Lewis County where I was living before I came down here. It's like, there are so many people that I think live in those areas that are just hoping that the mill is gonna start up again one of these days. And I don't know how long you can keep wishing for that to happen. I mean, Uh, let me walk through it. So, um,
3: in terms of the mill opening up, um, we're not giving up on that either. So, so I'm actually working, I mentioned I was in South Korea. uh, leading a trade delegation, so one of the meetings that we had was was with some potential investors um, who are looking to reopen a mill in Raymond, Washington, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, you know, if, if that can happen, uh, we think that would be great investment in that mill. It would be 50 uh, or more family wage jobs, uh, people who have the skills and knowledge of, you know, uh, expertise, and so I'm out there hustling and marketing you know, talking to folks all over the world and saying, look, if you want to make an investment in, um, you know, a facility that can create wood pellets for, for biomass energy production, well, guess what? We've got the cheapest energy anywhere in the country. Uh, we've got a skilled workforce here. We've got the port of Gray's Harbor and, and other, you know, ports, that, deep water ports that you can have access to uh, to get energy, you know, to, to, to get these uh, materials. Uh, back to Asia for their use over there or where, whatever the use case is that they want. And so absolutely we're not giving up on that at all. We're working hard to, to try to find those opportunities. But you're right that in the long term uh, we've got to recognize the direction that the economy is going and has already gone and try to find those same value propositions Uh, Or some version of them uh, here that have seen the Seattle area do so well. And it's, you know, again, it's gonna be different in each place. So when it comes to higher ed and and workforce training, um, what do I mean? Well, number one, um, let's try to find ways that people can affordably get access to higher ed and workforce training. So we're partnering with Western Governors University. We just signed a Memorandum of under, of Understanding, my office did. Uh, Western Governors University is a nonprofit, um, a publicly founded, uh, but now privately operated online, Uh, institution of higher education that gives bachelors and graduate degrees in uh, high demand applied areas. So in healthcare, in business, uh, in teaching, and so, you know, what that allows is for people who are working, not, you know, to, to, so they don't have to then, you know, quit their job and go move to a college and, you know, they don't have to worry about childcare. So that's part of the solution, but we also need to expand our community and technical colleges, help them to get some online uh, exposure so that, uh, again, we can just be more flexible and meet students, particularly adult students who need to go back and get trained where they're
2: at. And- so you were recently in South Korea. Um, and so that's, uh, you know, the Korean Peninsula has been in the news lately. And I am just wanted, wanted to hear from you, what's the mood over there, just with all the heightened tensions between the U.S. and North Korea? What are, what are people telling you? What, are, what were you hearing over
3: there about We that? were surprised, you know, and, 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 and actually when we got there, um, we were briefed by um, staff from the U.S. Embassy in South Korea, and, and, the, um, and, and this woman who works there, uh, in political affairs uh, made this statement and we kind of couldn't believe what she was saying she said you know I, I know I know this seems hard to believe but you know here in South Korea people are pretty unfazed by what's going on um, you know they just feel like it's you know this has been happening for years and you know there's always this kind of brinksmanship and you know they're not Really, you know, affected by it, and um, and she said, you know, it's it's actually the media, like a lot of times the, the U.S. media will come over here and hype it up and be you know pretty melodramatic um, about what's happening, and we were kind of like, uh, you know, I don't I don't know about that, um, but as we spent the week there. I do have to say, I mean, people, you know, it—it it, it didn't feel, to me, demean- I, I mean, I—I I was living in New York during 9/11. I was in, you know, I was going to college in New York when 9/11 happened, and I mean, I remember, um, you know, the the immediate aftermath of that. Of course, you know, those circumstances are different, but I'm, but you know, the, the when people had that kind of fear that what was going to happen, you know, was something going to happen again, um, and and even at times when there'd be, you know, we'd go back you know, we'd have these, you know, orange alert or whatever, these types of situations and people, you know, you could kind of feel in the airports, um, you know, people have this kind of tension. And we didn't feel that way, Um, you know, in in walking around Seoul, I mean, um, restaurants were, you know, were packed, Uh, you know, people, we went to go visit the demilitarized zone um, and uh, people were bringing their families there, you know, Koreans bringing their families there and um, and you know so so I gotta say it, it it did feel to me and as we talked to, to Koreans there they would echo that sentiment that you know uh, this is you know this is not the first time that, that this type of rhetorics out there but they did feel like we did hear consistently that um, th- this type of uh, diplomacy or, or or you know um, war of words over Twitter they don't feel as helpful and and they do feel like uh, you know the US government could be doing a lot more to listen to the South Korea's own government and partner with them and 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 actually hear them out before tweeting something out um, and and potentially making the situation more dangerous um, you know not just uh, for for people in Seoul who are you know, 30 miles from the border, but but obviously for people here in in, in Vancouver and Seattle. So, on your Twitter feed, you have a
2: back bacteria to, to Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. You have a, a pin tweet that says something, says something to the effect of, uh, "For Democrats to become uh, the majority, we must convince the public that we're more interested in taking action than taking umbrage." And I was hoping you could just expand on that. What what do you mean by that? Taking action
3: over umbrage. I feel very strongly that you know the Democratic Party. Um, needs to take this opportunity after having uh, this, this, you know, presidential defeat, um, as well as you know, struggles in Congress and all around the country. I mean, just to be clear, I think we now at this point we have 15 uh, Democrats serving as governors. Um, you know, uh, we're, we're very close to having only about a third uh, of the states uh, with, with, a, with a Democratic. Um, uh, a chamber in the legislature. and I think there are fewer than seven with uh, where the legislature is controlled by Democrats entirely, um, and so that's, you know, that's not competitive, and it shows that we, we've got a real problem getting our message across uh, to voters, uh, all over the uh, all over the country. And so I feel very strongly that as we, you know, come out of that devastating loss in 2016, we got to be thinking about what we're doing wrong and, um, and and how we can improve and, and really how we can reach out to people in all different parts of the country. And um, what I meant in that statement was to say, you know, we are very quick right now as a party uh, to uh, wag our fingers in, in people's faces and, and try to feel and, 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 you know, and really sound, um, you know, morally superior on issues, Um, And in a lot of ways, we maybe were a little too educated for our own good. Um, And what we're not doing is listening to people enough um, and and really hearing from the public, you know, what they're experiencing and and, and really working with them to try to improve their situations. And so, um, look, I'm somebody who uh, my parents were immigrants to this country. I feel very strongly. Um, that the President's focus and direction um, uh, is, you know, anti-immigrant rhetoric and and policies are destructive for our country, they're destructive for our economy, they're destructive for our uh, culture of inclusion. That's really what's made this country great. I do feel that. But I also believe that we as Democrats need to go beyond just opposing those measures. And we need to be able to formulate and articulate Ideas that relate to jobs and education for everybody—white, black, Asian, Latino, male, female, gay or straight—and that—that's a—that's you know—and I think those solutions are universal solutions. Um, you know, the, the 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 drug crisis we have in our country—it's a universal problem. You know, we've got problems in inner cities. But we've got problems now in rural areas. Um, you know, the the access to higher education. You know, it's a struggle. And has been a struggle for generations in um, you know in diverse inner city communities, but it's ex- increasingly a struggle in rural areas where you see now for the first time families not sending their kids to college, even where the parents and grandparents did go to college. So I really think that we, as a Democratic Party, we need to be uh, more inclusive in our in our thinking as well, even as we uh, point the finger at the other party and point out the, the many ways in which you know, their policies are, are not inclusive. So
2: the Democratic Party in Washington State is doing pretty pretty good as far as uh, controlling offices and getting uh, members elected to office. Do you think this is a problem Democrats in Washington have of getting this message across, or do you think this is more in other states?
3: I think um, you know I, I think Governor Inslee's done um, a, a great job in reaching out statewide uh, and and listening to people. And you know I think it comes from the fact that he represented Central Washington um, in the Congress, uh, as well as in the state legislature. Um, you know, Senator Cantwell and Senator Murray uh, both also represented kind of economically diverse areas uh, in in lower office before becoming senators. And I think, you know, they have a kind of a, a keen appreciation of the, you know, diverse needs across the state. Um, and so, you know, I, I think at a, at a high level, at, a, at the statewide level, um, you know, we have been fortunate, and I've had the, the good fortune of learning from a lot of those folks as I've moved up uh, in politics. Uh, but you know, for a state that is, um, you know, wh- where you see, um, you know, President Obama do as well as he did, you know, for example, in the in the mid 60 percent range, um, you know, for us to have. Um, a dynamic where the Republicans control the state senate and we only control the state house by one vote, I think it's clear that we're not living up to our full potential as a party in terms of getting our message out at the legislative level. Now some of that is some gerrymandering that happened and and some, some decisions that were made in the in the redistricting process, but I also think we need to look in the mirror and, and really think about um, do we have a message that is Uh, resonating in Clark County, and in Cowlitz County, and Lewis County, and Pacific County, and some of these places that really, uh, really have have struggled a lot. And um, if we only have an economic development message that's Seattle-based, if we only have a message that's Bellevue-based, then it's it's understandable why
0: voters would not think that we're competent or prepared to represent them in, in their part of the state. To bring up Gray's Harbor County again one more time, sure. I mean that you know forever was a solidly Democratic area. It was like a it was a Union County forever. And in this last election, I mean they they voted for Trump. W- what does it take to convince those people in those places that maybe their parents or they themselves were once Democratic voters and then become a disenfranchised and have started looking to either the other other party or even you know somebody like Trump that had no political affiliations before this? As a resource to to help them out, and and I think it begins, as I said, it begins with actually listening. I mean,
3: I'll tell you, it's hard for me because I'm a lawyer uh, by education. I I, I guess I, I guess you'd call me a politician by profession now, um, and I've you know I've also been a professor, um, and so you know all three of those are jobs that are not associated with listening. They're more associated with liking the sound of your own voice. But we do need, as politicians, to shut up and listen sometimes and, and hear what people um, are, are telling us. Then we need to work with them to actually form real solutions. Now, look, on the right, what are their solutions? What are the solutions that President Trump's been, been talking about? Kick out the immigrants and jobs will come back. Um, you know, threaten and yell at our allies across the, the globe. And uh, manufacturing is just going to, you know, magically come back. Uh, coal is the future. And um, you know, we need to be doubling down on our investments in coal. Yeah, so those are the things that, that he's been talking about. Um, you know, I don't think any of those are right. Um I think you know when you when you look around the world that's not a none of those are a recipe or formula that any economy has seen work, certainly not uh, anywhere near the recipe that's worked in parts of the u s that are experiencing economic growth and tremendous growth. You know now, look in my party we've got some ideas, and I support these ideas around making sure we have. Um, you know, a living wage, that when we say a minimum wage, it's actually something that, that really um, can, can work for people. We have, you know, great ideas around affordability and having housing and, and having transportation investments and infrastructure investments. I think those are all good ideas. But I also think on the left, the Democratic Party, we haven't actually been 100% straightforward with voters either. And what do I mean by that? It's that, look, if you tell somebody, okay, um, if you're a barista at a coffee shop, uh, you ought to be able to make a family wage um, so that you know, when you're you know, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50 years old, you're gonna continue to be able to, to support your family and your, and your kids and, and all that on your barista salary. Well, you know what? People say, what if I don't wanna be a barista forever? What if I want economic mobility? and mobility is different from justice. In the Democratic Party, we have a very, I think, admirable focus on economic justice, but we also have not been delivering uh, any kind of uh, real sustained answer to the question of economic mobility. How do I take myself from where I am now, and yes, with paid sick leave, yes, with paid family medical leave, yes, with a living wage, but how do I then get to the next place? And, you know, to me, The answer to that's pretty clear. It's access to education, it's access to workforce training, it's bringing new dollars and investments into our communities to create jobs. Um, It's, you know, making uh, targeted investments in transportation and other, you know, infrastructure that make our areas more appealing for businesses to set up shop. Um, it's investing in clean energy so that we can continue to be competitive on energy costs for businesses that set up here. It's all that kind of stuff that's gonna make you know every part of our state and every part of our country more competitive. And I don't think we talk about that enough in the Democratic Party. So now you have a situation in, let's say to use your example, Grace Harbor County or Lewis County where you know they're hearing from the Republicans you know something that, they know, you know, if, and if they don't know, they're going to learn. Is not true, which is being anti-immigrant is not going to get your job back. Um, you know, uh, picking fights with Germany, and the UK, and South Korea, is not going to get your job back. Um, you know, uh, it, doubling down on coal and other fossil fuels is not going to get your job back here. And then they're also. I think they've, they've sent a message that they don't think that the answers that our party has been giving are satisfactory, because they're not speaking to mobility and, and, and real change um, and kind of economic conversion and transition in those areas. And, and so that's, that's, I think, where you get that disillusionment, and, and it's really problematic. So I'm just, you know, I'm just, I'm one person, this is one small agency that I run in state government. But we want to say, and we're meeting with Democrats, Republicans, independents, it doesn't matter. We're, we're out there just meeting with people saying, you know, talk to us about what you've been experiencing and, and,
0: you know, give us the information so we can work with you and hopefully come up with some good solutions. Well, we'll look forward to seeing if, the, if your message actually translates and people start taking it up. But thank you for coming on the show.
2: So now we turn to Vancouver City Politics with Katie Sword, our new city government and politics reporter. Hi, Katie. Hello so katie you've been covering the races for vancouver city council and you recently uh did an article about uh the the race for vancouver city council position number two uh tell us a little bit about that race
1: yeah so it's a race that not many people probably know about at this point it wasn't on the primary ballot because there were only two candidates incumbent alicia topper and vancouver candidate Justin Forsman, he's run a couple times uh city council in 2015.
0: So, um, you know, Alicia Topper is a longtime face or a well-recognized face around the community, especially in the political circles. Justin Forsman um I I think it might be it's probably safe to say he's somewhat of a fringe can- he's a fringe candidate. Um And when I say that, I guess I mean he's he's kind of a political newcomer and he's a colorful dude. Uh, Can you tell us just about like some of the highlights of this guy's past campaigns and what he stands for and things like that?
1: Sure. Uh, He identifies himself as a patriot. Um, So you can kind of imagine what those types of views are. He's for small government. He's anti-corruption.
0: He wanted to start his own currency for Vancouver, right?
1: He does. Does he still want to do that? He still wants to do his own currency. Um, He's mentioned it in this race quite a bit. Uh, He wants to be backed by silver instead of – he wants it to be backed by silver. Uh, He wants it to be called the Fortnote as a proposed name.
2: Has he explained to you why that would be a good idea to have uh, Vancouver have its own currency?
1: Um, He just believes that the uh, U.S. dollar is backed by debt and therefore is unstable.
0: That's keeping in like the traditional libertarian perspective of things, right? I think, I mean, obviously there have been a whole a whole group of people that have wanted our money being based off of some kind of like valuable metal um, since we were taken off of it in the 70s. And so, I mean, Ron Paul is just like the probably the loudest amongst many most recent champions of going back to some kind of standard. He's the first guy I've heard of wanting to go to silver though.
1: Yeah, yeah, he wants to go to silver because it's more, it's more plentiful. So we need to be able to get more of it to have more currency backed by silver is his view
2: did he offer any sort of plan to to bring vancouver onto its own currency backed by silver
1: no no he just it's just something that he said in his campaign that he would like to do this it would be good for the city and he also believes that in time it could be implemented in the county
2: and what what are his other issues because i read over your uh your article uh, summarizing the editorial board's discussion with the candidates. And he seemed like he had uh, some conservative views, but he seemed like a pretty mainstream politician. So, where, I was hoping you could talk about that conversation and, and just what are some of Justin Forsman's other views?
1: Yeah, so he does come aco- across in this interview anyway as pretty conservative, um, not necessarily mainstream, but a lot of the issues are ones that even his uh, opponent, Elijah Topper, agrees with. Um, he's big on homelessness and wanting to remedy that. Um, He's up for road expansions, uh, the ability to have more cars on the road rather than a shift toward biking and public transit. Um, He's against fluoride. He would like that to be removed, and he also would like to lower taxes to stimulate the economy. He said he believes that if we lowered not only Uh, sales tax but property tax people would have more money to spend in the economy and that would help, although he did acknowledge that we do need more revenue. So there's a disconnect there between his ideas.
2: And he has some endorsements in this race.
1: He does. His top endorsement is that of Joey Gibson of Patriot Prayer. Um, He also is kind of reluctantly endorsed by the Clark County Republicans.
2: What's reluctant about it?
1: It's reluctant in that they do not... they have not announced that he is endorsed by them. He has been allowed to say that he has been endorsed by the Clark County Republicans, but they have made no such formal announcement.
0: I wonder if it's one of those things that it's they're endorsing him simply because they can't or don't want to endorse his opponent.
1: Uh, It didn't sound like it was that. It was more uh, he filled out the application for endorsement and it was approved. There was no vetting process from what I understand for this endorsement. So it's just it's something he can say, but it doesn't sound like the party will back him up in that.
2: So who's Alicia Topper?
1: Yeah, she's uh, an incumbent, she currently sits on the city council. She's running for reelection. Uh, she's pretty in line with what the council's been working on in terms of her views. She's very interested in affordable housing and solutions to homelessness. She's a big advocate for constructing a new bridge. She said um, that this is one of the biggest issues the council will have to address next year.
2: The interstate by bridge?
1: Yes, yes. She said that it was incredibly antiquated and doesn't meet seismic standards and that it's been deemed unsafe. So she views that as one of the top issues the council will have to consider next year. How involved they can be in that is unclear, but it's an issue she thinks is, is big. Um, and she also is, uh, you know, invested in the waterfront development. Um, she mentioned that she wants the oil terminal to be shot down so that the waterfront can really have a chance.
2: So where does she stand on the idea of Vancouver having its own currency?
1: Uh, she gave a one-word answer to that, and the answer was no.
2: So now we're going to turn to the contentious port race. With uh, We're going to talk with Damian Passanti mm-hmm. about the the race,
0: and it sounds like there's a bunch of money that's being flung around. That is right. Um, you know, at the very beginning of this election season, shortly after these two announced, um, I had people from the both – Clark County Democrats and Republicans tell me that just you wait, there's gonna be a lot of money in this race. And they're right, they are so right because On Monday, Chris Green filed documents with the Public Disclosure Commission, uh, the PDC for Washington State, as some of you guys might know it, that uh, Vancouver Energy gave him $150,000 for his campaign. And that's on top of 75,000 that they had given him just a few weeks ago. So Chris Green, let's just back up for a minute. Who is Chris Green? So Chris Green is a insurance agent from Vancouver. He lives over in East Vancouver in District One. He's running against Don Orange, um, a guy who recently moved To District 1, owns a business in the Uptown Village of Vancouver, and they're both running to um, replace Brian Wolf, who is the current commissioner and is not going to be running again. Why why would they give him that much money? Well, uh, great question, as I heard him say several times during the editorial board meetings. Um, So they gave him that much money because... Don Orange wants to kill the lease. He is campaigning on killing the lease with Vancouver Energy and getting the terminal out of town. Chris Green likes to say that he's not for the terminal, but he's in favor. He likes to he likes to not take a position on the terminal, is what he sticks to. But he says he is for the process being completed. And um, cutting the lease short would mean killing that state evaluation project that has been going on for four years and would send a bad message to any potential business that might want to move to the port as a So this sounds surprising. Chris
2: Green has not been clear on his position. What what is his position? Is it has he taken a position previously on it? What where is he on this issue? I
0: have to say one of my so when he met with the editorial board, I sat in on that meeting. When he met with the editorial board last Friday, uh, he was asked, you know, from like if he were a voter, would he be concerned that a company um, is throwing in $75,000 into a local election. And he said, yeah, it's problematic for my campaign, but you know, it's a, running a campaign is expensive and I got to get my message out there somehow. Well, later that day, Vancouver Energy gave him $150,000. So it's obviously not that big of a problem. I called him today and asked him about it. And he's like, you know, actually it's not problematic. I've got to get my message out there and this is going to be an expensive race.
2: Is he concerned at all about the optics of this, of, the, of a company that has a direct interest in port business giving so much money to his candidacy?
0: Well, like I just said, I mean, he paid lip service to it being a problem for his campaign. And then when I said, well, how is it a problem, Chris? he was, uh, He said, well, maybe it's not. It's probably not. So I don't think he really thinks it is. And if he really thought it was a problem, he would reject the donation. But he hasn't. How has Don Orange's campaign responded to this news? So I want to, before I answer that, um, it's not only about how Orange's campaign has responded to it, but but other people have responded to it. When he first got this money, that first $75,000 I was talking about, uh, Jack Berkman, who apparently is a friend of Chris's, wasn't planning on making if i under, remember correctly he wasn't planning on making an endorsement or at least wasn't going to make one soon well after he found out about the 75 grand he went and cam- he went and endorsed uh, don orange because he didn't want to see all this foreign money coming into the race uh to your original question um orange is not Orange um, pledged back in June that he wasn't going to accept any money from an oil company and still hasn't. And he says basically Tesoro, at Vancouver Energy, Tesoro and Savage are trying to buy this election. I want to throw a caveat in there because while he says that, it's just it's a matter of time before anti-terminal groups start throwing money in on his side. The last port commission race that happened between Eric LeBrant, the current commissioner, and... Um, I forget the other lady's name, the the incumbent that he unseated. But um, anyway, the Washington conservation voters gave him $100,000 in in in-kind donations, which meant beating feet and, you know, uh, knocking on doors and creating mailers and what have you. So it's – they are working with – Don Orange's campaign now, and it's a matter of time before they or some other environmental group do the same thing.
2: So, do you expect Don Orange to start reporting some pretty large contributions from uh, anti oil terminal groups? Too? I do,
0: yeah. Um, it seems like he's
2: running out of time. The
0: election is coming right up. Yeah, I mean, this is the election's what, the first Tuesday of November? Or is it the second? First Tuesday of November, and that's about a month away. So, yeah, it's a matter of time before it happens. And honestly, I. Ex- Probably by the time this podcast comes out, it will have already happened. Um, I'm willing to bet. So it's, it's, what, Whether or not they will be able to match the amount of money that uh, Chris Green has gotten from the oil terminal folks, is, uh, I find that to be highly unlikely. So far, 84% of Chris Green's campaign fund has been funded by Tesoro and Savage. And I wanna throw out there that Savage only gave him 5,000. So $230,000 came from two companies. And is
2: the company that wants to set up the oil terminal in the port of Vancouver. Correct, Tesoro is one of two companies behind the terminal. So how does this race stack up as far as
0: uh, money being spent statewide? Is it- Huge. uh, Huge. How huge? So um, Chris Green is now the, uh, uh, on a local election level in the state, Chris Green has the sixth largest war chest of any candidate in Washington state. And that's at the local level. So city council, city mayor, mayoral, whatever. The only people that have more than him, Dow Constantine, uh, the chief executive of King County, his war chest is like a million and a half. But he started it back in like 2014. Um, And I would even say out there that Chris Green is probably technically the fifth largest war chest because one of the people ahead of him, uh, the former mayor of Seattle, Ed Murray, His war chest was like 300,000 some odd dollars, but he's not running again. And as anybody paying attention to politics, he resigned in disgrace recently.
1: Can you put into context how much money the Don Orange campaign has, just to give us an idea?
0: Yeah, Orange has raised um, just a hair over, a hair under $81,000 at this point. So about a third of what Chris Green has. And what I think is really interesting, when you look at the way their donations break down, Greens is almost entirely um, his his uh, Greens contributions are almost entirely uh, companies, corporations, and whereas oranges are almost entirely people, like it's very opposite. He has like three hundred and some donors who have all contribute contributed. I think the average is right around one hundred fifty dollars each. So, And that's skewed because he's had a few people give him $5,000 or $1,000 or $1,200. So this is, this is very much like neighborhood folks versus a business interest folks is going on here. It's a fascinating race to watch. Thanks, Damian. Yeah, stay tuned. All right, everybody, that is a wrap. So if you have any questions or comments, you can please uh, reach out to me. I would love to hear from you guys. And I want to say thank you very much for rolling with us and listening to all the shows. Uh, the, the show's email address is podcast at You can email me directly, damien.pizanti at columbian.com. You can find me on Twitter. You can find this podcast just about anywhere you find podcasts. So thank you for tuning in. Tell your friends to tune in as well. And I will look forward to talking with you in just a couple weeks. Take care.